someone's uh, hearing aids. Good morning. Morning. Thank you, Susie. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. <coughs> it's a dual department rounds today with the Department of Surgery. Welcome. It is January 23rd, 2019, and um, we have a, a brief announcement from the Grand Rounds Committee, Kathy Shepkin. Wants to uh, alert your attention, if you hadn't already noticed. <laughs> On behalf of Autumn McClure, um, she is starting a new program with us called Cook, Eat, Sprout. She has some funding to help provide some healthier options for breakfast. She'll be sending out some surveys. She'll be here over the next four weeks with a, a pre-clinic uh, or pre-grand round survey to evaluate her program. And then in the every fourth Wednesday of the month, she's going to be here with her nutritionist with some healthy food and recipes for all of us to take home. So it's called Cook, Eat, Sprout. So uh, thank Autumn when you see her. Thanks for eating healthy. <clears throat> so next week we will have a, a, an update on the 21st century point-of-care ultrasound, and today we're pleased that uh, Dr. Coturo is, is going to be um, teaching us, uh, a native of East Liverpool, Ohio. Uh, Dr. Coturo received his bachelor's degree from Duquesne University and his medical degree from the University of Pittsburgh, both in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, came to New England for his surgical training at Tufts as well as Leahy Clinic Medical Center, finishing up a fellowship in pediatric surgery to the north at McGill University's Montreal Children's Hospital. Subsequently began his career at the Children's Hospital of the King's Daughters in Norfolk for 14 years where he essentially co-developed the procedures, uh, one of the procedures he'll be discussing today um, and, and continues to perform here uniquely. He was recruited by Dr. Laurie Latchoff, fortunately for us, in 2005 as Associate Professor of Surgery and Pediatrics and has been a stalwart since. Uh, he is currently Section Chief of Pediatric Surgery, and in addition to clinical innovation, his career has been marked by educational excellence all the way back to his senior year at Duquesne as a senior leader through Chairman's Awards at New England Medical Center Tufts, where he was a resident, 
and faculty teaching awards, uh, both in Virginia and even as recently as 2017 here, the Geisel School of Medicine Department of Surgery Clerkship Award for outstanding contributions. So um, I don't remember the last time we've had him for Grand Rounds, but it's, it's great to have Dan back at the podium. Well, good morning. Thanks, Keith. Um, I'm going to uh, talk a little bit uh, about, mostly about pectus excavatum, but we'll talk a little bit about some of the other chest wall anomalies, but uh, um, I'll tell you, we'll tell you some brief stories as we go. But uh, in the beginning, we'll, we'll, I'd like to just go over a little bit of the embryology because I always tell our students that surgery is applied anatomy and pediatric surgery is applied embryology, so we'll talk a tiny little bit about that. Uh, we'll, quickly review the broad spectrum of uh, chest wall anomalies, but we're mainly going to focus on pectus excavatum and carinatum, and then and talk about the treatment options for them. And, and that's going to include talking about uh, my uh, uh, story of helping to develop what we call the minimally invasive pectus excavatum repair, or become the NUSC repair um, in Virginia. My disclosure is that I helped to develop that procedure, so the instrumentation as well as the uh, uh, you know, instruments that we use, uh, the hardware that we use, I helped to develop, and those are some of my original drawings when we were doing this, and I'm on the patent for developing the instrumentation. I wish I could say that I became independently wealthy from this, but <laughs> that is not true. Uh, uh, I have shared with several people that Getting anything made for pediatrics is extremely difficult, and uh, to have a company actually even take any interest in making something that's only for, really only for children, but now people are applying it to adults, uh, is a gift in itself. So uh, I feel fortunate to have found somebody that uh, uh, was willing to make something that they weren't going to make a million widgets and make a lot of money on. Um, so let's start off with... Uh, you hit the jackpot this week, and in your clinic, you uh, get to see four different patients that have chest wall problems. And uh, the first two are 14 and a half, and uh, you see the uh, up starting on the uh, uh, left, on your left side in the upper slide. Uh, this one's uh, kind of going in. The next one, uh, chest wall, he comes in, says, I've got my chest is sticking out. Uh, on the uh, lower panel, you see uh, the... Uh, uh, this uh, nine-year-old uh, who comes to you that's had a history of having had uh, in utero surgery and uh, for uh, a congenital pulmonary airway malformation. And, uh, and then the last one is a patient that's uh, 22 months old that his chest is starting to sink in laterally, and he's got a complex history of prematurity I'm going to take that microphone away from you because it's <laughs> acting up in the wide world web. It is. So <laughs> Homeland Security will be here in a minute. <laughs> it's just right there. Mike Rizzo will be. Okay. Sorry about that. Okay, so I'm going to use this microphone. You're going to have to use that microphone. Okay. All right. Pretty soon I'll be shouting. Uh, uh, <laughs> we couldn't get the uh, clicker to work either, so... All right, so what are you going to recommend to these patients? Uh, you're going to tell them maybe it's a cosmetic deformity. We'll refer you to plastic surgery. Don't worry about it. Um, we'll get an X-ray or CT scan, refer you to orthopedic surgery. You're going to grow out of it. Forget about it. Um, you're going to restrict their activity, not let them play in any sports. Um, 
Or you might say, uh, don't get too attached to this one. Uh, he's not going to make it unless somebody operates on him right away. I'm going to tell you, these are actual quotes that have come. Some of these are actual quotes, and actually some of them came from pediatric surgeons. Okay. So, especially the last one. Okay. So, uh, the embryology of the chest, uh, very briefly, in the mesenchymal stage, uh, the you know, ribcage starts, uh, uh, the sternum starts as two sternal bars, which join in the middle of the chest, uh, and that can lead to one of the anomalies. Everything in the ribcage initially is cartilage, and uh, before we're born, the posterior portion of the rib, about two-thirds of the rib, ossifies. In between the end of the rib, the costochondral junction to the sternum remains as cartilage. And that's what gives the flexibility of our chest to move in and out when we are taking deep breaths. The sternum has now finally uh, been described as uh, like the handle of a water pump. When we're really working hard and exercise, it is moving in and out uh, and uh, pulling the chest forward. Um, so the whole spectrum of anomalies, pectus excavatum, uh, is the, the main anomaly we see. That's when the uh, sternum cartilages are sinking inward. These are not always symmetrical. Uh, and uh, you can have torsion of the sternum. And uh, more commonly, it will be deeper on the right side because the heart probably holds the sternum, the cartilage, a little bit forward. When that happens, especially in females, it can look like they have agenesis of the breast. Uh, the breast will sink into the deformity and uh, will look like it's lost. Um, pectus carinatum is kind of the opposite. It's where sternum and cartilage protrude outward. Again, it may not be symmetrical. You may see it more on one side than another. Um, of the other anomalies, uh, and if we look at all the anomalies in North America, pectus excavatum and carinatum comprise the majority of the anomalies. And pectus excavatum or combination deformities is about 90%. Uh, the other deformities, uh, uh, Poland syndrome, where you're missing cartilage and ribs, uh, that's pretty rare. Uh, June syndrome, which is, uh, uh, is a, a thoracic dystrophy, where the ribs don't have a signal for growth, um, is also very rare. And some of these, these other ones where you have both combined spine and chest deformities uh, are exceedingly rare. Scoliosis, however, can affect uh, uh, the chest as well. So sometimes, uh, uh, and we're not going to go into those, but uh, those are even more complex anomalies. So pectus excavatum, we think occurs about one in a thousand children. Uh, they're actually, we actually don't know the true incidence because none of these chest wall deformities are reportable. And because they all occur in a spectrum, there are some patients that have a very mild manifestation that probably have pectus excavatum, but they don't even know that they have it. Uh, these are, the, the deformities are more common in males than females. And if we look at the ones that we've seen here uh, at Chad, we see about a five to one ratio. Uh, it's about that ratio nationally. Um, it can be noted at birth in an early infancy uh, during the toddler years, and the most common time that we see it is during the adolescent growth spurt. And these are deformities that can be progressive. So once you note it, it should be monitored uh, over time. Um, there is a genetic predisposition, predisposition to these, and um, 
probably about half of the young people we see have someone else in the family with uh, one of the chest wall deformities. I've seen brothers and sisters with one with pectus excavatum, one with carinatum, uh, all with carinatum. There's uh, th these patients here, there were six boys in the family, all of them had chest wall problems. So uh, there is a genetic predisposition to this, and sometimes families don't know that a great-grandparent may have had one of these malformations. Uh, it is associated with Marfan syndrome, Ehlers-Danlos. There are a multitude of other syndromes that it's associated with. with. These are all the associated things. The most common thing that we'll see, though, is scoliosis. And interestingly, if you look at the incidence of scoliosis, it's about the exact opposite ratio from male to female. Scoliosis is seen about five times more commonly in females than it is in males. So I suspect that when we find the genetics for these, that we will see if you're male, you're going to express it with a chest wall deformity. If you're female, you're more commonly going to express it with scoliosis. And so uh, we screen for both of these until they've the young people have reached skeletal maturity. Because at that point, the deformity for the most part, will not continue to progress. Scoliosis is a little bit different. If you get over a certain degree, it can continue to worsen into adulthood. But for pectus excavatum and carinatum, it's usually finished once you've reached skeletal maturity. And I probably don't need to tell pediatricians, but that's usually around age 16 for girls and around age 18 for boys. Um, one of the things that can affect symptoms in these deformities and uh, is when did it occur? Pectus carinatum usually uh, uh, is not associated with any symptoms, but pectus excavatum can be. And children that have had this since early infancy often express fewer symptoms. And that has to do with adaptation. And I give, when I talk to parents and patients, I give the example of a child that's born with one arm. They run around like they have two arms and uh, they don't notice it. Younger, uh, but a patient that develops it during their teen years, they notice they have bigger complaints. And that's because you know what you're missing. And uh, so that can affect the symptom complex that we see. So is there a physical impairment? Is this a physiologic malformation or not? Do patients grow out of it? And do they ever need an urgent repair? Well, the symptom complex is variable. The answer is kind of yes and no to that because it really does depend on the spectrum of severity. A mild deformity will cause no symptoms. But as pectus excavatum gets deeper, the most common things that we have as symptoms are shortness of breath, exercise intolerance, and occasionally palpitations. And so if you see on this example of a CT, you can imagine if the deformity is uh, you know, compressing the heart, you may have uh, exercise intolerance uh, because of uh, decreased stroke volume during exercise. Now, this finally has been looked at. Uh, is It's actually very difficult to show this in the resting state because most young people don't have any physiologic compromise from this when they're just at rest. So we see this when they're starting to do exercise. So the younger children rarely are complaining about this. But um, in a uh, studies uh, looking at uh, you know athletes, and this was a small study, they were looking at people that were competitive athletes doing exercise testing. They showed that uh, there was a decrease in cardiac function, and these were people that were doing more than an uh, hour a day of aerobic exercise. Um, 
in repairing pectus excavatum, uh, doing especially the procedure I helped to develop, the minimally invasive pectus excavatum repair, a group from Texas showed looking at 100, they took 123 patients, they were able to get 107 back post-operatively, looking at ones that had uh, changes on their cardiac echoes preoperatively. And if you relieve the compression on the heart, the little valve, valvular leakages, which are usually thought of as being insignificant, most of them go away, including mitral valve prolapse, which is a common association with pectus excavatum. Now, looking even further, a group from Calgary in Canada, they took 60, they looked at uh, patients with exercise testing and uh, they had uh, uh, 67 patients that they were able to do full exercise testing, PFTs, echocardiogram, and a body image uh, survey, both pre- and post-operatively, three months after their bars were, were removed. And they showed that they had an increase in pulmonary functions and uh, during exercise testing, an increase in the O2 pulse and a better uh, self-appearance uh, scores. And they concluded that Pectus excavatum was produced a fixed restriction in the chest during, especially during, uh, you know, high stress. So during exercise, uh, what they utilized, because these they they did, you know, uh, acknowledge that it's technically challenging to confirm the physiologic effect. And what they looked at was the O2 pulse, which is a measurement of the saturation during each beat of the heart. Uh, uh, right during exercise, and they showed that the O2 pulse was able to increase. It was not a great increase, but it was a modest increase. Um, other ways of trying to look at this, um, a group from uh, uh, from uh, uh, looking at this from France uh, tried to look at the uh, cardiac MRI, and there's a few places that are trying to do this as well, and I'm going to see if I can if I can get to this, I had it on my screen, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. Well, I'm not sure it's worth waiting since I can't get to it right now. Uh, they had a dynamic, the cardiac MRI is much more sophisticated test. They were able to show pre and post operatively that the right ventricular compression is uh, resolved by surgery. And the right ventricle is actually very difficult to uh, to measure its uh, uh, because of its shape from echocardiography, uh, it's more of a crescent-shaped uh, structure. Um, I'm sorry, the video that didn't work, but um, pulmonary symptoms kind of go along with the exercise stress, uh, you know, during exercise, and so the pulmonary symptoms of shortness of breath and exercise intolerance may be more significantly uh, associated with the cardiac dysfunction, but a lot of uh, young people with this will have some decrease in their pulmonary functions. It's usually mild. They're usually not major decreases, but pectus excavatum can exacerbate asthma and sometimes is confused with exercise-induced asthma. And what you'll find is, is patients that are thought to have exercise-induced asthma and are really being affected by their chest wall deformity, don't respond to bronchodilators. Um, and uh, so it, it, it can both exacerbate and can mimic asthma. And you can imagine, as the deformity goes in, it can sometimes force the heart into the left chest and cause atelectasis in the left lung, so you're getting shunting with this deformity.
So other ways of trying to study this, um, uh, there have uh, the group that I was in in Virginia, they, uh, uh, back when I was, uh, was there, we looked at some patients postoperatively and showed that really for the first time that pulmonary functions could be improved after operation. And we'll talk about why that wasn't being seen with the older operations and partly had to do with technique. Um, a multi-center trial was done. I was involved in it and uh, when it was initially started, and actually the majority of the cases came from Virginia. We compared the newer operation with the more standard older operations that were being done and you could see, even in trying to enroll patients, they never achieved the number that we wanted to because people were not doing the open repairs anymore. We only got 43 patients enrolled that had open operations. But they showed a mild increase in pulmonary functions. So the same group in Virginia, they took a technique that was uh, developed in Italy uh, for looking at uh, body wall motion and actually these reflectors that are put on patients are actually used in the um, movie in industry in order to produce computer-generated images, uh, uh, you know, to mimic human motion. And what they do is, is uh, these little reflectors are put on the patients. There's 89 of them put on them. And then eight infrared cameras measure the motion of the body in, uh, and they were doing it with and without deep breathing exercises. Uh, so pretty labor-intensive to do this. They did this in um, a group of patients. They had 119 patients, and 64 had pectus excavatum. 55 were control patients. And they showed in areas of the chest where the, to the, where the sternum, there was a decreased motion in the mid-portion of the chest. And what they were seeing in pectus patients was a compensatory increase in their abdominal breathing. So later, a few years later, they repeated this study with patients pre- and post-operatively and looking at 42 patients that were done pre- and post-operatively with the same technique. And what they showed in this study was is that the mid-portion where the sternum is uh, uh, after correction had an increase in its motion and they had a 500% decrease in abdominal breathing. So. Children with pectus excavatum are compensating by using abdominal breathing, and that's what tires them out as they are exercising. Um, the cosmetic or psychosocial aspect of this disease is a real part of the disease. I don't utilize it as the main indication for correction, but there, you do uh, children that have any kind of abnormality and they're body, uh, you, know, uh, you know, and I use as an example for patients talking about children that have cleft lip. Uh, cleft lip doesn't cause any physiologic problems, but the psychosocial issues related to it are pretty immense. And so some of these young people with pectus excavatum will show depressive symptoms, and you'll find that some of them will stop participating in activities where they're in sports, they won't go to the pool anymore. And, and uh, young women often have great difficulty with clothing uh, if they have a severe deformity. So this can affect body image for sure. And then this uh, 
group I was in Virginia, we did a study looking at that as well and you know, documenting that this does affect body image. Not the main reason to do something, but it is a component. So what's the long-term effect of having one of these chest wall deformities, especially pectus excavatum? Well, we really don't know. We don't have no natural history of most of the diseases that we take care of, truthfully, uh, especially these ones that are not life-threatening. Um, Johns Hopkins University, uh, which is one of the oldest hospitals uh, in, uh, uh, in the country, in the early 1900s had a series of 50,000 autopsies, and somebody went through that series. They did autopsies on everybody that died in the hospital, uh, which was much more routine. And they said that they, they found 62 patients with pectus excavatum, and they said they either died younger, or if you lived beyond 65, then you lived longer. Well, I don't know what that means in 2019. Um, we do know that, you know, just naturally, all of us, as we get older, we are not as flexible as we are when we're younger. So does this affect you when you're 80 and you have pneumonia? Possibly, but no one has ever done the study to show that. Uh, so we really don't know what the long-term effect is, but it's not ever an emergency. So what time of, type of treatment should you do if you have a patient with a chest wall deformity? Well, the first thing is to do a history and physical. No other thing needs to be done to, to diagnose these. X-rays are not necessary. You don't really need to do other studies. In the younger patients and ones with mild deformities, I just encourage them to participate in all activities. There should be no activity restriction. And I know that there are patients that have come to me that have been told that their PCPs have said they shouldn't participate in sports. That's not correct. They can participate in all activities. And as they get into their adolescence, when they're starting to really have a growth spurt, I start seeing about every six months. Uh, the younger kids, I'll see them once a year or every couple years. Uh, once they're old enough to participate in obtaining pulmonary functions, I will do a pulmonary function study. It's non-invasive test to get a baseline of what their function is. And then if and only if they want to go on and have something done, will we do an x-ray, and we'll talk about CTY and a cardiac echo to screen for the, the slight association with Marfan syndrome where you can get aortic dilatation and aortic aneurysm in patients with Marfan syndrome. So... Um, there are things that you can do that are non-operative. Uh, in Brazil, there's an orthopedic surgeon that says you can correct pectus excavatum by doing deep breathing exercises. Well, uh, I don't run an exercise program uh, here, and you see this young man that does not have a severe pectus excavatum, but I tell parents I'm pretty realistic. I have children, and the likelihood that they're going to participate in doing breathing exercises 50 times a day, and I'll tell them that 10 years from now your chest is going to look better, it's probably about negative 20 that they're going to do it more than one day, okay? So I don't run a program. There are physical therapists in the country that do that, but you have to have a very motivated patient to do that. There's also a company in Germany that developed a suction device, a suction cup, and they come in various sizes. Um, and uh, you need to wear this, so you have to be able to build up to wear this three to four hours a day. And uh, the success on this has been pretty minimal. I've had two patients try it. Uh, I think it will work on younger patients. But again, to have compliance on something that you have to have the patient wear for three to four hours a day is pretty low. This has been used sometimes for some, uh, some surgeons in the operating room, a sterilized version, to help pull the chest forward while they're doing the repair. So it, it does have some application, but 
uh, as a primary treatment, it's not so good. Now, a lot of parents, they get on the Internet and they, you know, everybody comes in to say what Dr. Google said. And uh, there was a trial of uh, an implantable magnet uh, into the uh, sternum. Uh, it was developed by Dr. Harrison, who actually was probably the, really the developer of the in utero surgery and fetal surgery um, and kind of retired that field. Uh, he developed and they did a, a FDA uh, feasibility study on 10 patients of implanting a, uh, a rare earth magnet. This goes, you have to do an operation, this is implanted under the sternum, the magnet goes over the sternum and then you have to wear this, I don't know if you can tell that's a chest, you wear this plate on the outside that pulls the chest forward. Uh, they did this in 10 patients, uh, I don't think they've done anything since that time. Um, they had to reoperate on six of them. We had complications that required reoperation, and they found that children that were in their adolescence already were already too stiff for it to make any in, uh, any uh, change. It works on younger patients that are really flexible. So, uh, and of course, it requires two operations because you have to put the magnet in, you have to take the magnet out. Um, at least two operations plus all the complication operations. So. Uh, it, the indications for repairing a pectus excavatum, in my mind, are children that have symptoms with shortness of breath or exercise intolerance. And then, and we'll talk about this as we go along. But operative techniques for fixing both pectus excavatum and carinatum were the same uh, in the early operative uh, eras. And to put things in perspective, if you remember, general anesthesia really wasn't well developed until World War II with endotracheal tubes. Antibiotics were discovered in 1941. So in the early 1900s, it was said there would be no operations done intrathoracically because there was no way to control the negative pressures in the chest. Uh, so the first operations done before good general anesthetics were removal of the anterior chest wall. So all the cartilages, sternum were removed. And uh, you then had uh, just muscle and skin over top of the heart and lungs. You had no breathing restrictions, but you also had no protection. Uh, that didn't catch on very well. Uh, the next operations were operations of removing the cartilages on either side and doing an osteotomy. Uh, either pulling it forward for pectus excavatum, pushing it backward for pectus carinatum, and then putting you in external fixation and traction for several months. Uh, and so you sat in a thing like this for two to three months. Uh, there is one person in Minnesota, if you're interested in sending patients there, that was doing this still, uh, and you wear that for about three months. And this patient saw me after his operation had failed, uh, and he showed me these pictures. He wore that for three months. And you can imagine, I didn't show his face, but he was not looking very pleasant, I can tell you. So. Uh, when you, if you start looking about this, you hear Dr. Ravage's name and uh, Dr. Welsh. Dr. Ravage was a pediatric surgeon, actually a very big innovator in surgery. He was the surgeon that brought stapling devices to the United States uh, in the 50s from Russia, uh, which are used in like multiple, multiple surgeries uh, now. Uh, Dr. Ravage was at, uh, he, he was initially at Johns Hopkins, went to the University of Pittsburgh. He was still alive when I was a medical student. And Dr. Welsh was at the Boston Children's Hospital. Their operations, they did away with the external fixation on the chest. And what they did was uh, remove the cartilages on either side, uh, peeling the cartilage out of the perichondrium. And part of the theory at the time was that 
it was cartilage overgrowth. There's too much cartilage is what we were told as students. So they would remove the cartilages on either side, sew the perichondrium back up, and theoretically, and then put an osteotomy, pushing it forward or backward, and the cartilage is supposed to grow back in the right direction now. Well, to do this on a teenager would take four or five hours to lift all the pectoralis muscles, peel all the cartilages out. And, uh, you know, as pediatric surgeons, we're operating on preemies and tiny little patients and, you know, doing uh, thoracotomies for, you know, lung malformations. And we knew that younger children recovered much more quickly. So it became the standard to start saying, well, let's do this on younger kids. They recover more quickly. So Dr. Ravitch, as I said, was still alive when I was a medical student. As a student in Pittsburgh, when I rotated on pediatric surgery, we were telling patients that came to the pediatric surgery clinic with pectus excavatum that they should be operated on by age five, by the time they started school. Okay, that was the standard treatment. And in fact, the big centers like Pittsburgh, Boston Children's, Johns Hopkins, where Dr. Haller was, uh, they were saying, well, if you could do a five-year-old, you could do a four-year-old, you could do a three-year-old. And there was a couple places saying you could do it at age one. Okay, so now it was an easier operation at that time, but sometimes after the operation, the sternum would start to sink back in. So in the 60s, and this is the operation. So we'd resect all the cartilages on either side and uh, sew back the perichondrium. Well, uh, in the 50s and 60s, people started adding internal fixation at the end of the operation because sometimes the sternum would sink in. And so there was a little struts developed, it's called Atkins strut. There was, in Germany, they came up with a thing where they stuck it into the rib and stuck it into the sternum. Uh, those were very difficult to take care of. There was an operation developed by the Japanese who always make things a little more complex. They took the sternum out and flipped it over. It was called the sternal turnover operation. So there were a whole variety. You didn't know what was being done when people were doing open surgeries. Well, uh, that was being done uh, and, as I said, recommended to do younger children. Well, not only did it sometimes sink in, that's, that little strut would be taken out after a couple of months. Uh, sometimes, rather than regenerating as cartilage when you did that extensive dissection, things regenerated as bone. Well, that was not so good. Well, Dr. Nuss, who was in uh, Virginia, was doing, at that time, uh, younger children. I actually said when I trained, I am never going to take care of pectus excavatum. Okay. <laughs> I said, I hated the operation. It was the antithesis of what we did as pediatric surgeons, with the exception of tumor surgery. So then I went down to Virginia, and he was doing this on three, four, and five-year-olds. What he did was he got the idea. He was of the school, was leaving Wilson underneath the breastbone, and he said, maybe I can skip steps one through 14 of pulling out cartilages and just skip to the last step and putting a little bar underneath that. And the reason was, is, is especially in younger children, while we were peeling the cartilages out of the perichondrium, we would always retract it anteriorly so that while we were peeling it out, we didn't poke through the posterior wall into the heart and lung, okay, which can happen during all these operations. Well... When we would grab the first cartilage on a young child, we could pop the chest completely forward on the very first cartilage. And so he got the idea of doing that, and he started doing that, and he had done it about 10 times. I joined him in 1991 in practice, and I said, wow, that works great on little kids, but what happens when they start getting older and they get stiffer? Are we going to be able to do this on older children? Well, we started doing it on older children, but part of the thing was is developing the initial bar was only a few inches long, and the company that actually was making it had no interest in making us a longer bar, none. And fortunately, 
a little tiny company that was making plates for craniofacial surgeries, and the plastic surgeon who started Operation Smile, uh, uh, which is a group that goes around the world doing cleft palates and lips and world, uh, is in Norfolk. And he had a, a representative from this tiny little company that was making these plates, and the guy said, you know, well, maybe our company could make something like that. They were just a one little shop in Jacksonville, Florida, and they started making us this longer bar. And we then designed instruments to reach across a young, an older patient's chest to do the operation, and we showed that you could remodel the chest by putting braces essentially inside the chest. We collected about, it took us about 10 years to do 50 patients, because most surgeons were doing one or two of these a year. And in 1997, we reported this at our national meeting of pediatric surgery. And, and at that time, we had some kids that were 10 years follow-up. Well, this is back when I had a few less gray hairs when I was in <laughs> Virginia. That's Dr. Nuss. That's where I was. And uh, we were doing this. So why do this technique? Why do a different technique? Well, uh, there was up to a 35% recurrence with the old operation, especially when you did it on younger patients. In the 90s, Dr. Pena is much more known for doing anorect taking care of anorectal malformations. He had uh, somebody in a lab uh, operating on rabbits who are actually commonly get pectus excavatum, removing cartilage, and showed that in younger patients that doing that extensive dissection often caused it to uh, become bony. So, uh, and Dr. Schamberger, who's still the chief of pediatric surgery at Boston Children's, uh, he inherited patients from Dr. Welsh, and they started looking at the long term of patients that had been fixed with pectus excavatum, and they showed that pulmonary functions decreased over long term. And what happened? It was attributable to increased chest wall rigidity after the operation. Well, around the same time that we reported our what we called the minimally invasive repair, we started seeing some of the long-term results of things that were being done of really young patients, extensive dissections. This is a young man who was taken care of at Johns Hopkins. He was operated on when he was three, and he's 19 in this picture, and you see a, what looks like a little boy's chest on this young man. He had developed an acquired thoracic dystrophy uh, from the extensive dissection. He lost the growth centers in his ribs. And so his chest was tiny, and rather than regenerating his cartilage, it regenerated his bone. So he had no flexibility. He could not walk up a flight of stairs because of lung restriction. Now, that did not happen to everybody, but there was no way to predict it. And the younger you operated on somebody, the more of a risk there was. Now, at one point, I had the world's experience in doing redo operations for pectus excavatum, and I'm thankful I don't anymore. But... Uh, this is a CT preoperatively, and CT, uh, you know, bone is going to be white, that's spine, ribs, car sternum should be white, cartilage should be gray. So this, rather, not only is this flat, it's all turned to bone. And so there's no movement of your chest if it's just big bony plate. And then people that had the sternal turnover, if you injured the blood vessels, everything melted away. And that doesn't give you breathing restriction, but then you have no protection in front of your structures. Well... Why were no innovations done over 50 years? Well, if you look at the main textbook of pediatric surgery and you look at the editors of the first edition, it is Dr. Ravitch and Dr. Welsh are on there, okay? And then you go four editions later, and it's Dr. Welsh and Dr. Ravitch. Well, I tell everybody in medicine, especially in surgery, we all do a little bit of voodoo. There's a lot of things that we do that we don't 
have any real basis for. And many of us don't admit it. I think in the medical field, we pretend like we have reasons, but each of us, and it depends on what island you train on, what voodoo you do. So I tell people, you know, I train in Montreal, which is actually an island. It's an island in the St. Lawrence River. Uh, you know, uh, so all of us have that. And you have to admit that. And so you should always be questioning what you do. So if you get to the fourth edition of pediatric surgery, now we've got Dr. Welsh on top and Dr. Ravitch, third editor. And guess what operations they're recommending for chest wall deformities? The ones that they did. Okay. So our bones are being replaced every year as an adult. So our bones are still changing, not the same rate as a child. And uh, so could breathing change our chest? Probably. In fact, it does. In diseases like COPD and emphysema, people develop a barrel chest. We say they've developed a barrel chest, and the barrel chest is just from pressure of the lungs, from not being able to exhale. Normally, we are oval-shaped. We are about twice as wide as we are deep. and. What was happening is uh, I started noticing, actually as a student, that there were children would come in with this kyphosis. And I say to the surgeons, why do they stand like that? And they say, well, they're trying to hide their chest. And that made sense in the teens who were now aware of their body image. But after seeing thousand, uh, over a thousand children with chest wall deformities, I was going like the little kids stand that way too, and they couldn't care less what their chest looks like. Well, in, when, when we started having an explosion of surgeons coming and patients coming to us from all over the world in Virginia, people started sending CT scans before I would see the patient. And they'd say, well, do you want to see this patient? Do you think we should operate on him? What do you think? And I started noticing that in my mind's eye, if I corrected their deformities, they weren't ovals, some of these kids. Some of them were rounded. They were barrel-chested. And I realized when I saw the patient in real life, it was the kids that had kyphosis. The kyphosis was allowing the lateral portion of the chest to come more anterior to compensate for the deformity. And so it affected this thing that Dr. Haller, who was a pediatric surgeon at Johns Hopkins who died a year ago, uh, came up with what he thought was an objective way of measuring pectus excavatum because there is no real grading scale. And um, what he did was he took CT scans, and if you measured the deepest part of the deformity of the sternum from the AP diameter to the lateral di diameter, he said that patients that he thought were severe had a ratio rather than 2 to 2.5 of greater than 3.2. Well, either fortunately or unfortunately, many insurance companies have picked up on that 3.2 number as a criteria as to whether or not they will cover this procedure, okay? So if you measure the front to the back to the side, this one's got an index of 6.8 rather than 2.5. And actually, a pediatric radiologist that uh, uh, was with me in Virginia wrote a paper on the standard ratios in children at different ages. So if you, if you have somebody that's got a barrel chest, and when they're corrected, their ratio is 1.1 to 1, you need a much deeper deformity to get to that ratio of 3.2. And the CT index doesn't compensate for patients that have torsion or asymmetry of their chest or cardiac compression. All those things don't, aren't taken into account by that simple number. And these deformities come in all shapes and sizes. So sometimes the entire chest is flattened, um, and, you know, so it, it's not a great, uh, a great indicator of the severity. Well, 
The thing that we're using for this technique of putting braces in is making use of the fact that we've got cartilage in the anterior portion of the, of the chest, that it's flexible. And it's interesting when we teach, you know, CPR for patients in pediatric population, you don't use two hands squeezing the chest because they're so flexible. Dr. Haller, who was also uh, big on pediatric trauma, wrote many chapters saying that Children rarely ever get flail chest or you can run over a child with a car in the chest and they won't even, some of them won't even break a rib. Uh, it's amazing because they're so flexible. Yet, we were saying when they had chest wall deformities that it was all, we needed to resect the front of their chest in order to correct it. Same person was saying that. Well, this operation we developed is not a little operation, just even though we call it minimally invasive. And unfortunately, that's a bad word for all those things because all the techniques that are done with laparoscopy and thoracoscopy are actually just minimal incisions. They're big operations. So what we do is we uh, make an incision on either side of the chest and tunnel underneath the sternum. And, uh, you know, so we take a deep deformity. The, the bars, which I brought a couple for show and tell, are they come flat. We custom bend them to the patient. And then it's put, uh, we make a tunnel underneath the, uh, up to the uh, apex of the ribs. I added thoracoscopy to the procedure. When Dr. Nuss first started doing this, he blindly just passed an instrument underneath the sternum. Uh, thoracoscopy that we do today didn't exist then, okay? Video thoracoscopy didn't come out until around 1990, okay? So, uh, uh, and he was doing it on three, four, and five-year-olds that were very flexible. He just took a Kelly clamp and put it under, which is like a big hemostat, just slipped it under the sternum. And I tell people, cardiac surgeons are doing median sternotomies every day and not looking underneath. But it's also not compressing down on top of the heart. Okay, So that's what it looks like internally, the, the deformity of, uh, of the pectus deformity. And the instruments that we designed to go across were so that we didn't make big holes with the dissection. And we pushed the heart out of the way. And you can see here, here's the, the, the curve of these instruments is to kind of push the pericardium out of the way so we don't go through the heart. And uh, we make the substernal tunnel, lift the sternum. And then we bring the bar in backwards and flip it over. And the little the stabilizer that we put on the side is to prevent it from rolling afterwards. So you have to put at least one bar in if you're going to fix this, and sometimes we have to put in multiple bars. We leave them in for two to two and a half years, and that's about uh, that took some time to learn how to do that too. Initially, when Dr. Ness did this, he was taking the bars out in less than a year because the old operation, they were taking them out a couple months, and he thought kids were flexible. We realized that... Um, it was uh, not long enough to correct the problem. So here at Chad, I've uh, seen over 400 patients and had the ratio of male to female, five to one. I've done 200 repairs of pectus excavatum, of primary repairs. We've done a bunch of redos here too. But, uh, and then I've seen 172 pectus carinatum patients, which is way out of proportion for the population. So I think as people have known that we are interested in chest wall problems, we're seeing more kids. I don't think we know the incidence of these. Uh, I've not had anybody die with this, but that these operations, both of them, there are patients that have died, have had holes made in their hearts. Uh, I think thoracoscopy uh, adds an incredible level of safety for it. Uh, we have had some shifts in that of the bar, which is uh, uh, these are not fixed to the ribs. We just rest them on the ribs, and that's because when you put screws, wires, 
things into the rib, it stimulates bone growth. So when orthopedic surgeons are doing internal fixation, it stimulates bone to grow. So we actually rest it on the bones, which means that there's a potential for movement in the first few months until you make a fibrous capsule around the bar. And so some of them have moved, especially when kids violent sneezing. If you've heard me sneeze, you know I would, I would have moved my bar. Um, and, um, you know, the stabilizer helps with that. We've had a few where we've had to push the bar back in place, and actually Dr. B had to do that for me on a patient that sneezed and flipped it a lot. Uh, so bars can move, but it's usually in the first month or two after operation. Infection is a rare thing, and some of these other things are rare. Recurrence is actually about one, only about 1%. Uh, and the recurrences, as you can imagine, when we first started doing this, it was in younger patients. So we don't tend to do young patients anymore. Uh, if you do a five or six-year-old, they still have to go through their pubertal growth spurt, and that's where their risk is, is of recurrence. When, uh, so we tend to wait until adolescence to do this now. So we're going to skip now very quickly to talk just a minute or two about pectus carinatum because... Um, Bones, we already have established that they will change shape if you put pressure on them. Okay, so you can take pectus carinatum, and I point out to the kids that I see in clinic, uh, if, if you can correct pectus excavatum by putting braces on the inside, you can correct pectus carinatum by putting braces on the outside. Um, and the braces have gone through an evolution. They used to be, uh, I didn't come up with this idea, there were orthotists making braces, but they were initially adapting a shell which was used which you would call a body cast, was used for people with broken vertebral bodies to prevent motion of the spine, which kids did not want to wear. Even these, it's hard sometimes to get kids to wear them, and that's the problem with bracing for almost anything. That's why I say the orthodontists put, most of the time, they put bands around all the kids' teeth so you can't take them off, okay? Uh, that's why scoliosis bracing is almost universally unsuccessful because it occurs in the teenage years, and no teenager wants to wear a brace in front of their friends. So same thing can happen here. But you can see it can be corrected. And the lateral views are usually the best to see. Uh, they usually show up in adolescents more commonly. But I point out, you can't see this young man wearing a brace. I was giving him a hard time because I said, when you come back to see me, you've got to be wearing your brace. And I'm yelling at him and saying, you know, you're supposed to be wearing your brace. He goes, I am wearing my brace. Um, so, uh, you know, you can see here, uh, you know, before bracing and after bracing. Uh, now, once it gets corrected, I sometimes have the kids wear it like a uh, retainer until they've reached skeletal maturity. And I have an example of one of the even lower profile braces on the front table here. Uh, I have several orthotists that are now making it with just a heavy-duty Velcro so it doesn't pinch their skin. And these can be very inconspicuous. Um, so if we go back to those first four patients that you had back in clinic, uh, the first one, um, you know, with uh, pectus excavatum, uh, looking at pre- and post-operatively here, um, that is his result here. Now... This patient was a gift to me from Dr. Latchaw. She saw her first at age five and said she knew I was coming, and she said, I think I'm going to save this patient for Dr. Coritaro. So this is one of the first patients I saw. This young lady had had what we now call CPAM, uh, which probably does not need to be operated on in utero, but was removed in utero, a CHOP, and uh, did not require any ventilation or ECMO. And this is what her chest looked like, and she's nine at this point. Um, and 
those of you who remember Dr. Stotland, he saw her from plastic surgery, and this is from his office note. No evidence of scarless fetal healing, because that's what was one of the big selling points for doing in utero surgery. They would be scarless. Uh, you see this, not scarless. Uh, so this is what she looks like, age nine. So what, do I, what am I going to do with this young lady? This actually, she had a combined deformity of both excavatum and carinatum. And fusion of the ribs, if we go to her chest CT at the time, showed rib fusion, which uh, could potentially produce scoliosis. So, uh, and she actually had a floating, the sternum had been divided, and so the, the xiphoid, the bottom of the sternum, was completely separated from the rest of the sternum. And that was all a result of her in utero surgery. So at age 10, I uh, fixed her pectus excavatum component of the deformity and put two bars in place, and you can see lung and the heart out of the way and the space that we create there. Um, and uh, this is her after the operation. I revised her scar that she had, and then uh, she still had a residual carinatum deformity. She had pretty severe ADHD. I could not get her to wear a brace for her carinatum. And uh, so after, these are the two bars afterwards. And then 20, so two years later, she still had a pretty significant carinatum deformity. She was now developing breast tissue. Uh, I had her keep the bars for three years and then came back at three years, and I did a little bit of an open repair for the carinatum, removing some of the cartilage. And this is her after her repair. So you compare this to this. Uh, and I did convince her after we did the open repair. I wasn't. I wouldn't do it until she agreed that she would at least wear a brace to maintain the the correction until it healed. So big difference between that and that. So this young man uh, is another complex deformity. Uh, he had. Uh, he was born prematurely and had a multitude of problems, uh, including you know BPD and uh, perforation from meconium ileus and. Uh, uh, hypoplastic bile ducts. Well, he started developing this chest and a PDA that I ligated. He started developing this chest wall deformity at around really 16 months, but I saw him for a different reason. But then 22 months, it's getting worse. Um, and you can see it's slowly getting worse for a while. And then around age five, the right side starts going away spontaneously. So this is him at age six. Age seven, the right side is gone. The left side looks like it's getting better. And then at around age eight, he starts, the left side starts going back in. And he was having, he has a lot of shortness of breath and early satiety. I didn't know whether or not this wasn't pushing a little bit on the stomach. Uh, if you look on the CT, there's compression there. I didn't know if that was causing his early satiety. He has some sternal anomalies. He's got segmentation anomalies of the sternum. So uh, because of his shortness of breath that was developing, I did repair his pectus excavatum. And if you look at him before and afterwards, you can see that uh, we corrected somewhat the uh, lower rib cage problem. Now, in order to do that, I had to come up with a little bit different technique. I had to add an extra type of bar to re relieve that deformity in the left side. So. Kind of to end here, um, these deformities are not immediately life-threatening. So even though Dr. Welsh was telling patients that if don't get attached to your child, you know, they're not going to make it unless I operate on them. And that, the, I, that's an, I've heard that from multiple parents, that parents that now brought their 
children who had Pectisex cavatum to see me. And I know other surgeons that told the same thing. Dr. Leonard in Minnesota was telling patients that too. So um, that's not true. Okay, it's never an emergency. So if you have a patient with this, it's not an emergency. You don't need to do any x-ray studies to diagnose the problem. You just need to do a physical exam. I would suggest that when you're doing your scoliosis screening, that you look at the patient's anterior chest wall as well. That's, you know, the teen years is when it's going to be mostly noted. So have them unrest so you can look at both sides. Um, pectus excavatum can have physiologic effect as it deepens. Mild ones, no. Deep ones, yes. So it's a yes and no. And uh, these deformities can be treated. Uh, you know, they don't have to be, but they can be treated. Uh, and, uh, you know, carinatum, it doesn't cause a physiologic problem, but it does affect these young people's body image. And with a low-profile brace, I, I don't give them a brace. I don't tell anybody that they have to have a brace. I make the patient listen to an hour presentation. They have to request the brace and kind of make a contract with their parents that they're going to wear the brace. You know, and, uh, and, you know, and I guarantee them that if they put it in their closet or in their locker at school, it's not going to work. And some kids will do that. And so, uh, but, uh, you know, so I make them make a contract before they do that. So um, anyway, it's time now if anybody has any questions. I also brought a couple of the bars here and an example of a low-profile brace. Anybody wants to look at that? And I think we, we had some little flyers that we had made to send out to people in the community a few years ago for you to take if you'd like. Yes? Absolutely. In fact, I've had several patients come that have been seen by plastics or have had implants put in because they thought that it was agenesis or hypoplasia of the breast. And when you examine them, they actually have young women, especially once they start have breast development, can it can really hide it. If they have a symmetrical deformity, the breasts start to invert. They'll, the, you'll look if, if you look at a young woman uh, that has a symmetrical one, the breasts will be pointing in at each other. Uh, more commonly, though, for some reason, they get torsion. So what happens is it looks like the right breast hasn't formed. The left side of the chest stays out, and the right breast starts to disappear. Excellent presentation. Thank you very much. I was wondering on if you have any tips for physical examination of the overweight or obese. It's more easier to see in the thinner in children. Well, um, you know, it is, it, and it's becoming more difficult because one of the things that we look for is exercise intolerance. And if the main activity is video games, you don't. I didn't. I, I had to shorten some of the things I was going to say, but we, you know, that was one of the common things. So, uh, kids that are, but this this really does affect kids that are doing physical activity. Uh, it's it is not as common in overweight children to begin with. Okay, uh, the body build is the same body build that these uh, in one of the associations they also get spontaneous pneumothorax. Okay, it's the body build. It's the thin. Most of these kids are. And that's why, actually, when you ask them, like, are you the fastest in your class? Most of these kids are above the 90th percentile in height. So they always were the fastest in their class. You have to ask them, are you as fast as children that are your size? Okay, because if they're at the, above the 90th percentile, they're often already... Or you ask them, are you as fast as you were last year? So I have some kids bring in their mile run 
times. Are you running as fast as you did last year? Or you're, there's the pacer test. Are you, can, are, can you do the pacer test as fast as you did the year before? Those are more objective things. It is very hard uh, in the obese child to see it. And since we're seeing more obese children, we're probably missing it for some kids that might be having shortness of breath. But, you know, obesity can affect asthma and all the other things, too. So. Dan, thank you for a very uh, illuminating experience for me. As I sat here thinking about this, I, I saw how important the dynamic aspects of growth are. And you documented that, in particularly that, those last ones, those serial pictures. And I wonder if you've thought about trying to collaborate with some of the people uh, in the engineering school who are doing sort of biophysics to really define and almost use uh, some of your data to predict which kids are going to get into trouble by looking at and knowing the different forces of chest growth and expansion and things like that. I haven't had a chance to, I mean, there's just too many papers, but uh, as I said, the Japanese love to uh, look at details of everything. And they do a, like an embryology study or a, they do nine million slides. They've done a thing on forces and somebody, they, there's literally an engineering project that they did with that to show the forces of the chest wall. And uh, uh, so it has been started in some places. It is honestly, you cannot predict who's going to get to a severe deformity. And that was one of the things when I was a student in Pittsburgh, kids, some of them had a very mild deformity and surgeons were operating on them. And I said, well, why are we operating? I can understand the kids that had a deep deformity, but there were kids that had a mild deformity and they said, we're, ma we're preventing it from getting deeper. And as a student, students, you've got to question what your people are telling you. Because I was going like that. How do they know that? I, they must be way smarter than I am. Okay. I just, you know, they're attendings, you know, so they said it. That must be true. But then I realized, you have no idea. There are patients that have a deformity, and as they get bigger, it does not get deeper. And those are the ones where you find out, oh, Grandpa had that, and he grew out of it. If you look at them carefully, they really didn't grow out of it. They just proportionally did not get deeper. And so they look like they grew out of it, but they still have a mild deformity. That's why this whole spectrum. I don't know if there's any really good predictive thing other than monitoring. Well, it's really a structural yeah. engineering yeah. problem yeah. when you add the growth forces and if we understood the growth forces, you... Well, it's true, we, but the trouble is we don't even know exactly where the growth centers are in the ribs. <laughs> and that's why the extensive dissections were injuring them. We don't know where they are. Uh, we, we think we do in some areas, but we don't really know where it's, what where the growth centers are. We know where they are in the long bones, so if we have a fracture through the growth pipe, we can be in trouble. We don't know where they are in the ribs. So, yep. Yep. All right. Oh, absolutely.